Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. 2016 is finally over, and with it, another great year for the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. We had 52 episodes, over 60 guests, and covered dozens of policy topics. We celebrated the centennial of the Brookings Institution in a few episodes. The Academy of Podcasters and Podcast Movement honored us once again with a nomination as Best Education Podcast of the Year. Our team experienced some changes, but still turned out a terrific show every week. To celebrate the closing of the year, today's show features my favorite clips from the past 12 months. I hope you enjoy it and perhaps take the opportunity to download full episodes that interest you, and also share the show with friends. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts and subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you visit iTunes, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. We're on the Brookings website at brookings.edu slash podcasts. If you have a question for a scholar, send it to bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll get an expert to answer it in an upcoming episode. Finally, I want to thank everyone who has made this show possible each week. The audio engineer and producer is Gaston Ribeiro, who took over from Zach Colzer after Zach moved out west. Vanessa Sauter is the producer, and she replaced Carissa Nietzsche, who left to pursue graduate studies. Bill Finan did all of the interviews with the authors of Brookings Press books, and I look forward to more of his excellent interviews in 2017. Adriana Pita is the host of our Intersections podcast and guest-hosted some episodes. I want to pay special recognition to Governance Studies Senior Fellow John Hudak, who appeared on the show as a guest or contributor 11 times this year to update us on what was happening in Congress and then what was going on in the presidential election. I've had two amazing interns this year, Sarah Abdel-Rahim and Basim Maliki. Basim helped me find all the clips for this show. Best of luck to both of them in their future endeavors. And also my thanks to Mark Holster for his assistance with audio production, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser for their design and web support. Thanks to Richard Fawal and my boss, David Nassar, for their leadership and support. And finally, thanks to you, the listeners, for downloading, sharing, and I hope enjoying the program. And now, here's the best of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast in 2016. I've arranged the clips by policy areas, starting with domestic policy, then moving into global issues, politics, and finally, some more personal reflections from guests. The first episode of the year was my interview with Ted Geyer, the Vice President and Director of Economic Studies here at Brookings. I asked Ted what he was reading as 2016 began, and he talked about a study by Ann Case and Angus Deaton that was released in late 2015, and which, it turns out, had great relevance to understanding the 2016 presidential election. It's a shocking, shocking finding. Uh, And if you dig a little bit into what they've done, they kind of decomposed it to try and look at the causes. And what you're seeing is this mortality increase for for these middle-aged whites is being driven by alcohol and drug-related poisonings, things, alcohol-related illnesses like liver disease, and suicides, which has gone up precipitously. So it's, again, a glaring issue. And so I think in the paper, they even compare it to the AIDS epidemic uh, in, in the 80s. But of course, it hasn't gotten the media attention nearly, uh, understandably, in some sense, as the AIDS epidemic did. But it's a shocking increase in mortality. And so to me, it gets into some of the issues we were talking about before when we were talking about stagnant medium wa- median wages. So I don't want to draw too much into it. There's lots of different theories about why this is happening, one of which could be some sort of economic despair although then you wonder why it's hitting whites more than it is others. And they found it's primarily hitting low-education whites. 
I also spoke with two other scholars about domestic economic issues that were very much in the news this year. Here are Jennifer Vey, a fellow with the Centennial Scholar Initiative, talking about extreme poverty in Baltimore on the one-year anniversary of the disturbances there. And then Debashree Saha, an associate fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program, on how the drop in the price of oil affects state and local budgets. The racial divides are very stark. If you look at median household income, it's over $62,000 um, a year for white Baltimore residents versus not quite $34,000 a year for African-American residents. About less than 15% of white Baltimore residents live in poverty versus 28% of African-American residents. And nearly half of white Baltimore residents over 25 have a BA or higher, um, while less than 14% of black residents um, have a BA. At the same time, the geographic divides are also really significant. So overall, about one in five people in Baltimore lives in a neighborhood of extreme poverty. And these neighborhoods are concentrated mostly just west and east of downtown and are largely African-American. The stunning fall in oil prices from a peak of $115 per barrel in June 2014 to under $45 at the end of July this year has been one of the most important global macroeconomic developments of the last two years. The reason for crashing oil prices boils down to simple economics of demand and supply. Oil production remains high, with United States domestic production having nearly doubled over the last several years. To counter this, traditional oil-producing nations have flooded the market with oil, to make U.S. production less profitable. On the demand side, the economic slowdown in Europe and China has reduced the demand for oil. At the same time, vehicles are becoming more energy efficient. The result is a massive price drop. While the average consumer is enjoying the benefits of lower costs at the pump, the dramatic price drop has shocked the world economy and is having negative impact on some state and metro economies in the country. For states that are top energy producers, the crash in oil prices has led to a loss of tax revenues and big budget shortfalls. It turned out that a lot of my interviews on domestic policy topics had to do with issues in the development of children and youth and policies to improve their lives. The next four clips feature Melissa Carney of Economic Studies talking about her research on income inequality and the decision to drop out of high school. Diane Whitmore-Schanzenbach, who directs the Hamilton Project, on why we need to invest more in children. Former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan on dealing with youth violence in Chicago. And finally, a pair of psychologists, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Roberta Golenkoff, who led me through a fascinating conversation about their book, Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children. The punchline is that uh, boys who grow up in economically disadvantaged homes are more likely to drop out of high school if they live in a state or a metropolitan statistical area, a city, that has a higher level of income inequality. 
right? So if, if you know, low-income kids uh, are more likely to drop out of high school than high-income kids, but conditional on being low-income, the kids who are growing up in states or cities characterized by high levels of uh, lower-tail income inequality, so a greater gap between the bottom and the middle, they're more likely to drop out of high school, um, significantly so, six percentage points more likely. So this is a big deal, and um, to our mind, it's one of the first pieces of evidence suggesting that income inequality can exacerbate the consequences of growing up in a low-income home. Kids from low-income homes are more likely to drop out of school they're even more likely to drop out of school given aggregate level of income inequality around them. I think that we're dangerously underinvesting in in children today. And you know, there's emerging research that indicates that you know, if we spend more on schools, if we, you know, make sure that families have more income or if we re- alleviate food insecurity, that has a payoff, not just today, but down the down the line in terms of more productive people when they grow up. And so I think the evidence points to there's there's still a lot of worthwhile investments to be made, and it is a shame that we're not making them. And I hope that we'll start making more of those investments. I talk to you know high school students and middle middle school students all the time who it, it's it's both heartbreaking and hopeful who tell me that it's not safe for them to go outside anymore. They literally can't go outside. They go to school, they go home, they stay in the house. And as crazy as that is, that's their reality. And despite that, they are still working hard and still getting good grades and still working hard. So there are so many good people out there who aren't numb to the problem, who aren't hiding from the problem, who aren't hopeless, but who every single day in their own ways are trying to create something better Um, That's how we're going to get there. We're going to get there listening to kids, partnering with kids, empowering kids, and helping them drive us to the solution um, and to the the sense of of peace and community um, that we need. So it is a scary time. It is an unstable time. It is, frankly, an unsafe time. But it is a time I I am uh, convinced in my heart and my bones of tremendous opportunity as well. And I'm uh, desperately hoping that working together the next couple of years will be much better. Uh, not just for the entire city of Chicago, but particularly for those neighborhoods on the south and west sides and for the children who live there. I hope these next couple of years will be much better for them than the past couple. What we're trying to do here is to really switch the paradigm by redefining success. Now, on the one hand, in a traditional model, you can think of success as doing well on your reading test, your math test, and maybe your science and writing test. In our new system, I think we really do need to incorporate a breadth of skills. And so we'd suggest that what we really want, and we're borrowing this from uh, the Canadian educational revolution, which has taken place over the last uh, six to ten years. We love Canada. <laughs> is, uh, is that you should be happy, healthy, caring, social, and thinking as a child so that you can become a collaborative, creative citizen in the society tomorrow. That this isn't really about individuals. It's about grooming societies of the future. Many Brookings Cafeteria guests shared their insight and recommendations on a wide range of global economics and foreign policy topics. In the next set of clips, 
You'll hear from four scholars on why the world should care about industrialization and poverty reduction in Africa, on how Sesame Street exemplifies a global learning model, on the problem of quality education around the world, and on the case for free trade. First up, John Page of the Global Economy Development Program, then Jenny Perlman Robinson, followed by Rebecca Winthrop, both at the Center for Universal Education. And finally, Maria Solis from our Center for East Asia Policy Studies. This is a tough question to answer because there's an easy answer which I'm, I'm not fully comfortable with. And the easy answer is the one that both high-level aid officials and political leaders tend to pull out, in particular when they confront increasing skepticism on the part of their voters for, for aid and development assistance. And that is our security fundamentally depends on the prosperity of other countries. I do believe that that's true in the very long run. But I don't believe that a story, which in the sense is a security-based story, is all that much more attractive than the rationale that was offered in the 60s and 70s and to some extent is still offered in some countries like Japan, which is that our prosperity – depends on the prosperity of other countries. And if we want to export, we need countries that are capable of importing and we need to have a wider range of richer countries in order to expand the global economy and provide new opportunities for Americans. I think that's true as well. But I think there's a third reason, which is that – and it may go back again to the origins of my interest in economic development. In a world in which – the disparity in incomes between people living in the poorest countries and people living in the richest countries is actually greater than the disparity of income of people living within the borders of any country. So we're worried now about income distribution, worried about the distribution of wealth at the national level. If we look at it at the global level, it's even more extraordinary. There's also compelling argument that the richer countries have some obligation to think in terms of what they can do, not just in their self-interest, but also in the interests of the global economy and of global citizenry to help reduce these disparities. The core elements that we outline in the report are all very much demonstrated in Sesame Street. It is heavily research-driven, you know, from the very start, from when they're thinking about the the programming, from when they're working within a country, the evaluations that are done. Um, it's very much this notion that we talk about a flexible adaptation, where you have a model um, where they have, you know, the Muppets. Um, they have the target age children of children, three to five-year-old. They have a particular approach focusing on the whole child. But then they really leave it to their local partners and country to design the programs based on the children's needs there and based on, um, based on the national education goals. So it might be an HIV-AIDS positive character in the case of South Africa. It might be a girl-child actor, a Muppet rather, in the case of India. So they're really tailoring it to what are the educational challenges and needs in those countries. There's been a lot of progress on children's education around the world in the last 15 years in getting kids into primary school. Nine out of 10 kids around the world are in primary school, which is actually a, a great achievement and been a big push. We talked have talked about this before right. with the Millennium Development Goals. Um, but there's a lot to be done. A lot of kids are dropping out before they finish uh, secondary school. Uh, there's a 
sort of horrifying statistic. 75% of girls in sub-Saharan Africa enter primary school, but only 8% finish secondary school. Uh, and a huge reason why kids are dropping out is that there's really um, poor quality. Kids are not learning they're getting in, but they're really not learning what they should be learning to um, move forward. There's about 250 million kids around the world um, who don't have basic literacy or numeracy skills. The vast majority of them have sat in school year after year for four years and can barely read or write. We need to think um, anew as to how we make the case for trade. I think that the arguments are all correct, but they don't resonate. We need something else. Why I say this? Because I find that, you know, people that want to see the Trans-Pacific Partnership become a reality always talk about the gains from trade, you know, percentage over GDP and so forth. And they always mention that the gains clearly surpass the losses and that, you know, for the people who are not doing well, we have trade adjustment assistance. These are all true things but they're not going to make a difference. I think we should not just focus on the games. We have to focus on the fears. And unless we have that conversation, unless we realize that in a country that has seen income inequality rise the way it has, that's just on the recovery from the Great Recession where there were major cuts in employment, you know, telling them that trade is not to blame is not going to make it. You have to fix the root problem for people to be willing to look outside, to be outward looking. They're not going to seize the opportunity when they feel stuck, and they're stuck, it's very true. Few topics dominated headlines this year like the Syrian civil war and the refugee crisis. In one of the most poignant interviews I've ever done, a Syrian refugee named Kutaiba Ilibi shared his personal experience participating in the Syrian revolution and the torture he endured because of it. In another episode, Guest interviewer Bobby McKenzie, who was also part of the interview with Kutaiba, spoke with Leon Wieseltier about the moral consequences of Western inaction in the face of the refugee crisis. Here are Kutaiba Idlibi and then Leon Wieseltier. Going out to a protest means either getting killed or worse, getting arrested. Wait, why, why is getting arrested worse than getting killed? Because when you're arrested, you will wish to be dead every single moment you're in there. I was detained later in April 27th, the first time. I was taken into uh, one of the uh, Air Force intelligence bases in the outskirts of Damascus because I was delivering aid into a besieged area. I was the first time, I was that time the first one from Damascus to be detained, so they were a little bit curious and kind of like more careful with me. But still, when I got in there, I remember seven different um, security personnel were beating me for more than five hours. Not for anything, but this is what they call it, a reception. So when they detain anyone, they just, um, so they like use different methods. They use like lashes, they use electricity, they use something called um, the flying carpet which is just two pieces of wood tied like to um, one piece tied to the legs and the other piece tied to the back. And then they close them together so that when they beat me, they would like hit the head and the legs at the same time. We are further and further away from the political settlement that we want in Syria, primarily because we refuse to use the military force that would change the facts on the battlefield that would actually be the condition for the diplomatic solution that they want. 
we are standing by idly as atrocities multiply. We are uh, we have allowed the Russians to exploit the vacuum that we created in Syria, the big power vacuum, I mean. Um, and we're watching Putin almost unbelievably emerge as a regional power and even a global geopolitical power. And Syria is one of the places where he's, um, shall we say, signaling his intentions for the next period in Russian history. Um, the refugees continue to pose a huge threat to the countries around Syria that in which they found haven. Uh, the, the, the refugees in Europe continue to seem to be marooned in various places. Um, and as a consequence, you know, one way to think of it is this. I sometimes, that as a consequence, as a direct or indirect consequence of American inaction in Syria, we have witnessed the following. A secular tyranny, a religious tyranny, chemical warfare, barrel bombs, the torture of children, the displacement of 11 million people, the, de the destabilization or potential destabilization of Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, the refugee crisis in Europe, the emergence of Russia as a geopolitical power, and the resurgence of fascism in Europe. I mean, our inaction is the gift that keeps on giving. Two other foreign policy issues stood out in 2016, changes in Cuba and Brexit, Britain's vote to exit the European Union. Here are Richard Feinberg and Fiona Hill, both scholars in the foreign policy program at Brookings, sharing their expertise on these issues. I think the millennials generally have uh, respect for Fidel Castro and the revolution and what it accomplished uh, for their society. Uh, but for them, that's also a history and they want to move on. Uh, they want to see uh, younger leadership. They want a more relaxed political atmosphere. Uh, they want more opportunities economically uh, to exercise their own profession, to develop their own talents. They want to be able to act and easily move about at the international level. And they certainly want and expect fully normal relations with the United States. And when they say normal, that would mean to them that they could travel freely back and forth, uh, if they wanted to take a job in the U.S., they could. If they wanted to return to Cuba, they could. If they wanted to have joint ventures, collaborations with uh, people in the United States or elsewhere, there wouldn't be any obstacles. Uh, that's what their view is of a normal relationship. Uh, and they both uh, hope that that will happen. And actually, uh, in the millennials that I've interviewed, they all expected that to be in their future in the medium run. British politics is a bloodbath. Um, this uh, referendum was the result of British politics, Conservative Party politics. And, you know, what it has done, um, instead of resolving uh, internecine strife inside the Conservative Party, it's you know, basically thrown it out into the whole country. Um, you know, it just shows, again, 
uh, that if you decide to have a referendum, you should be very careful because the question that you uh, might be asking uh, might not be the question that everybody's responding to and it may also not resolve the issue that you want to uh, actually uh, put out to a broader um, uh, a broader vote. So what we've got now is a bloodbath inside of the Conservative Party that was um, you know, the inevitable result of all this jockeying for power among a group of people who all come from not just uh, the party itself but from similar backgrounds, have known, known each other, but some of them seem to have had rivalries since their school days, uh, Boris Johnson and uh, David Cameron, but also Michael Gove, uh, the, 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 uh, the you know, for, uh, education um, secretary and uh, again part of this uh, kind of tight group of uh, people all of the same uh, rough age and again very similar background and they're all uh, essentially fighting with each other. Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at Brookings, is the author of the new title from Brookings Press, Mega Change, Economic Disruption, Political Upheaval, and Social Strife in the 21st Century. In a conversation with my colleague, Bill Finan, Daryl talked about how recent dramatic disruptions in trends such as the rise of Donald Trump and Brexit are challenging institutions and societies. I'm optimistic in the sense that when you look at past uh, mega changes, like the early 20th century uh, one when we uh, shifted to an industrial economy, we managed that. It did take several decades to work through a lot of those issues. Uh, it required government to implement uh, new uh, types of social programs to ease the anxiety, but we did that. After World War II, uh, the globe was in shambles. Mm-hmm. European economies were uh, devastated. Uh, we redrew the national boundaries in a lot of different uh, places around the world, but we dealt with it. But the difference between uh, those eras and the current one was there is more of a sense of bipartisanship in public policy. So you get Republicans and Democrats to kind of see these changes, work through possible solutions, and actually adopt them. So far, that has been absent from the contemporary period. So if we don't get our act together, we may end up with a more negative future than otherwise would be the case. When we look back on 2016, perhaps the single most important event was the U.S. presidential election, which actually started the year before, and which featured a bitter battle with a startling outcome. Starting in September, the podcast team here put together a string of 10 episodes focused on issues related to the presidential campaigns and elections. We try to focus on policy matters rather than the horse race. I think we succeeded. Next up, six clips that showcase some of the most interesting conversations we had during the political season. John Rausch, a senior fellow in governance studies, set the stage with a terrific discussion of his Atlantic article, How American Politics Went Insane. After that, you'll hear clips from two episodes, one about the most important economic issues in the election, and then the most important foreign policy issues in the election. These feature senior fellows David Wessel and Mike O'Hanlon. The thing about political machines and parties and backroom deals and all of what I call middlemen, all of these people who work in the background to organize politics, is when they work well, we forget that we need them. We just assume that what happens is we vote and then the politicians go vote and the problem solved. We forget all these multiple things that have to go on. Someone has to recruit and vet the candidates, make sure they're competent people and then they have to organize these people when they get in government. They have to direct money. They have to move the coalitions around, get people together, get them on the same page, strike compromises within the coalition, then go out and compromise outside the coalition. That's the hard stuff. When it works, it's like our immune system. We take it for granted. We figure we don't particularly need all these you know, smoke-filled rooms. So we started 
holding up each and every one of these things that people were doing to the light. And we said, well, that doesn't look necessary. It's not democratic. It seems kind of corrupt. And one by one, we reformed away all of the elements that professional politicians have to use in order to organize their world. Look, the economy is growing painfully slowly. Uh, we all wish it were growing more rapidly. And there is a lively debate about what government policies might lead the economy to grow faster. Um, Donald Trump is relying on, I think, a discredited view that if you cut taxes enough, it'll somehow unleash a burst of economic activity, and that will mean more tax revenues coming to the government so you can then have a smaller deficit. Um, but that didn't work very well in the Reagan years. And also, even economists who are sympathetic to this view think that aiming for 4%, while certainly an admirable aspiration, is not something that we should be counting on. I think the overall danger is pretty low, but I do think that candidates who would and presidents who would support current policies of taking in refugees should probably spend a little more time explaining to skeptical and scared Americans why the mechanisms that we have in place are probably pretty good for finding anybody who would be a threat, reminding them that so far we haven't had that problem here in America, even though the French and Belgians have, and, uh, and then try to explain what else they're looking to do to, risks, to reduce the risks even further. And then maybe the innately uh, charitable and generous spirit of Americans can really come through and we can consider taking in even more refugees, which is what I would prefer. But I think we do need to explain to people, here are the vetting procedures, and they're pretty good. I think there's an hour or two or three of interviews, you know, of an, any given would-be refugee entrant to the United States. We obviously do every kind of background screening we can from whatever databases we might have on people, although those are often lacking for some of the individuals. You know, maybe we need to think harder about how to track some of their communications once they're in the United States. You know, I think some of the law and order concerns are legitimate. So I'm 99% on the side of Obama and Clinton, but um, Trump's not making up the, even though he's exaggerating the dangers in some ways and implying that so much of our violence in the United States is either from immigrants or Mexicans or Muslims, uh, he's not totally inventing the concern and we should speak to it directly. We step back to look at the big picture of the American presidency in Bill Feynman's interview with Elaine Kmark about her new Brookings Press book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. Elaine is the director of the Center for Effective Public Management here and a frequent contributor to the show. The old system, which certainly had its flaws, okay, in the old system, you won the nomination by negotiating with other powerful people in your political party. And so what the old system tested was the ability of a candidate to negotiate, cut deals, whatever you want to call it, but the ability of a candidate to operate in a system of shared power, which ultimately what is what our democracy is. Um, it tested also the candidate's ability to speak and communicate, but that wasn't nearly as important as the candidate's ability to d work with their peers in power. Um, we got lucky with some presidents. President Roosevelt could do both. 
right? He was a master communicator, but he was also a master dealmaker, manipulator, whatever you want to call it. He got the job done. Um, the new system tests the ability to communicate, okay? It tests the ability to, to inspire people, to make speeches, to do well on television, etc. There is no point in the system, however, where it tests whether or not someone can actually govern. Uh, and again, it's worked out for us sometimes. You know, we've gotten some. We've gotten some very good presidents. Uh, President Reagan, President Clinton, both had the ability to communicate well, and they had the background and the experience as governors to govern well. But we also have a situation where sometimes you could get someone who can only do one thing. So Donald Trump has shown us to be very, very good at communicating and, and tapping into people's fears and hopes. Um, but we, a lot of people are nervous that he could not, in fact, govern. And so that's, that's, the, that's what we've lost with the new system. Finally, two issues in the election and its aftermath that continue to be talked about are the role of the white working class in electing Donald Trump and the president-elect's conflict of interest issues. To address these matters, I spoke with senior fellow Carol Graham, who is an expert on happiness economics, and Norm Eisen, a governance studies scholar and former U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic, who was the chief ethics advisor in the Obama White House. When we compared three cohorts, poor whites, poor blacks, and poor Hispanics, and we measured life satisfaction, optimism about the future, stress, which is a marker of ill-being, People who are under high levels of stress have difficulty planning ahead, we I've sort of hinted at before. And what we found was remarkable when we first found it, which was incredibly high levels of optimism among poor blacks, almost higher than any group, rich or poor, in the data. This is based on Gallup daily data for the U.S. Reasonably high levels of optimism among poor Hispanics, which I expected, and then deep desperation among poor whites. And when I found this, it was at the time that Ferguson was mm -hmm. blowing up. All of the new dialogue about what's going on with poor whites didn't exist yet. And I was quite surprised. And then as I started to dig into this and try and explain it, I found two very different directions of findings, which we can talk about more in detail. But one was just incredibly high levels of resilience and optimism among minorities. And then this deep desperation among poor whites which is also now linked to new findings that we have on mortality rates going up among middle-aged, uneducated whites. For Mr. Trump, what he needs to do first and foremost is focus on the business of the United States, not the business of the Trump Organization. So his involvement should end the moment he signs these interests and operational responsibilities over to a respected independent trustee. And really, the search for the right independent trustee should be occupying him as profoundly as the search for any cabinet member now. And then it will be up to the trustee to untangle issues like, well, the children have an interest in these businesses. Is it appropriate or not for the children to exit? Should we do an LBO? What should be the role of the kids of Mr. Trump's executives in uh, LBO or leverage buyout? Should we bring private equity in? Should we do an IPO? Those issues really are, I think, for the trustee and for the children to discuss with the trustee, not for Mr. Trump. 
In a show that features such diverse topics, some conversations can't easily be put into domestic or foreign policy categories. Among my favorite moments are when guests share from their personal experiences to illuminate deeper truths. These last three clips showcase this approach. First up, National Book Award-winning author Phil Cly, who authored a Brookings essay this year on the moral dimensions of military service, shared a deeply personal experience of his wartime service in Iraq with me. Then, senior fellow Shadi Hamid discussed his own personal experience as an American Muslim and the complexities of his faith. And finally, former Brookings President Bruce McClary reflected on the value of a perspective based on both knowledge and experience. There was one guy, and you know, I don't know exactly his history, but p- people had said that he was he was a veteran of um, the Iraq invasion, and that uh, that he'd killed somebody with his hands, or he'd bashed a Iraqi soldier's head in with a radio, or something like that. And I don't know whether that was just the kind of the scuttlebutt. Um, uh, or uh, just something that somebody had made up in, in, in relationship to the, the kind of posture that he took to us. But, you know, whereas most, most of the times during inspections, you know, why did you join the Marine Corps to lead Marines? You know, just very sort of straightforward and simple. He'd ask us, you know, he'd ask guys questions like, you know, do you think you could order your men into an assault um, where you know some of them are going to die, right? Or if he'd be talking to one of the guys who had a contract to become a pilot, you know, do you think you could bomb, bomb a building knowing you might kill, you know, children and women and children? Uh, you know, he gets to me and he's, and he's, you know, this involved thing where it's like, you know, you you've called in air support and they, and then you you, you think there's insurgents there and then there's no insurgents, there's just this dead Iraqi and there's a kid at his side and you know the guy's brains are out on the pavement, but his leg is still twitching, and the kid doesn't understand that his father's dead, and he's asking you why his father won't get up, and what are you going to say to that Iraqi kid? And it was, uh, it was, you know, the kind of question that you, you don't necessarily, there is no right answer to, and I, I appreciated that there was somebody in the midst of all that where, you know, a lot of it is, is kind of very, uh, Raw, raw, you know, uh, uh, you know, pure aggression. Uh, that there was somebody asking us to think about um, these sort of hard choices that 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 uh, people find themselves facing in war. One thing I've really come to appreciate more is that Islam is a really complicated religion. When you dive into the theology, history, and culture. Um, it's not the easiest religion to understand. I don't think it's conducive to sound bites. We, and I think that's what a lot of people on both sides of a debate want. So I have Muslim friends who will insist that Islam is a religion of peace, which sounds nice, but what does that really tell us? What does it really even mean to say Islam is a religion of peace? It also doesn't make sense to say Islam is a religion of violence. Like most things, it's somewhere in between. It depends what interpretations we're talking about. Um, Muslims are different. They have different views. Um, so we can't say that um, Islam is entirely one thing or entirely something else. And that's why I think that we have to appreciate complexity and those of us who don't know as much about Islam, I think it's important to tr- for Americans to learn more, to read more, and to resist the temptation to pigeonhole Islam as one thing or another. 
I know from my own governmental service at the Treasury Department and in the Federal Reserve that when one was on the job, one does not have time to think big thoughts. It is what's happening today and tomorrow that overwhelm one's psyche, if you will, as a government executive. So providing perspective based on both knowledge on the one hand and experience, and I emphasize both of those, knowledge and experience. Knowledge is not alone is not enough. People, I think, the best of Brookings, the Alice Rivlins of the world, and there aren't many of them, have been and served in government. They know how, what the issues are and, and the pressures that come to bear, both political and intellectual, uh, uh, in government. And Brookings, to me, has the luxury of a training ground as well as a uh, spokesperson role in helping public servants keep perspective in their daily job. And so that's, that's one continuing, I think, value that a Brookings, a think tank, can provide. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this 2016 year-end review of the show. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing. I look forward to bringing you more great conversations about ideas and solutions in 2017. Happy New Year. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.